Well, friends, keep that passage open. Uh, if you've joined us uh, just today, uh, we've been working through a little series in the book of Titus, a little letter uh, that Paul wrote to his friend. Um, and the words we have here, these are really important words for us to hear. So I'm going to pray and ask that God would actually help us understand what he would have us understand this morning. Let's pray. Lord God, would you open our eyes to see the truth of your word this morning? Would you show us how this is applicable and relevant to us? But most importantly, Lord, would you grow us to grasp the gospel of your Son more, we pray, for the glory of our Lord Jesus. Amen. Detestable, disobedient, unfit for doing anything good. Does anyone come to mind when you hear those words? Don't answer that out loud. That would be inappropriate. But detestable. These are strong words, aren't they? What kind of people would fit this description? Maybe scammers, drug dealers, telemarketers. Unfit for doing anything good. Anything. Would you use those words to describe the people of Noosa? I suspect you wouldn't. In fact, we've moved here from another area, and one of the things that struck me about Noosa is how kind everyone is. But would you ever use words like this to describe people here in church? I hope not. But friends, in today's passage, Paul dishes out some strong words. He uses words like rebel, deceiver, liar, evil, brute, lazy, glutton, detestable, disobedient, unfit for doing anything good. He does not hold back. He dishes out strong language, but it's because he wants to draw our attention to a very severe problem. It's a problem that has the potential to destroy churches. It's a problem that has the potential to wreck lives And yet it's a problem that almost all of us will be really familiar with. And so the danger for us this morning is that we could respond to this warning in the same way that people in the 1950s responded to warnings about smoking. You could hear the warning but go, oh, everyone does it. Can't be that bad. That's the warning. That's the danger for us this morning. So we're going to come back to the problem in a bit. I'm not going to tell you what it is yet. We're going to come back to the problem, but first I want to have a little bit of a recap of where we've been in the book of Titus. If you've joined us just this morning, this should be helpful to you. Uh, Because over the past two weeks, we've been looking at this letter that Paul wrote to his friend, uh, left on the island of Crete. And he's urging Titus to continue the work of making and growing disciples of Jesus. That's what the book of Titus is all about. Titus, keep doing this work. Now, uh, this is Crete. It's an island in Greece. It's stunning. It, it, it's a gorgeous place. Has anyone been there? No? Oh, you have? Was it nice? Or are the photos misleading? I'm only going by photos. I think it, I've, I've heard it's nice. But anyway, in Paul's day, it was not nice. In Paul's day, it had a really, really bad reputation. You see, Crete was the kind of place that if you were driving through, you kind of lock your doors. It was the kind of place that if your sister said, I'm just going to go out for a walk at night by myself, you would grab a gun and go with her. It's that kind of place. It is not a nice place. It had such a bad reputation that you can see in verse 12, Paul quotes a philosopher 
who was from Crete. Like he's talking about his hometown, and his name was Epimenides. I don't know how to say it, but this is what he had to say. Cretans, people from Crete, are always liars, evil brutes, lazy gluttons. He's talking about his hometown. And Paul points to that and says, yeah, he's right. That's exactly what Crete is like. You see, it had such a bad reputation that Greeks coined a new term for people who were brutish liars. They called them Cretans. If you wanted to call someone a liar, you would say, oh, it's like you're from Crete. That's how bad this place was. This is the context and culture into which Paul has dumped his friend Titus and told him to continue the work that they started of making and growing disciples. This is the culture which surrounds the churches in Crete. This is the culture that surrounds the churches that Titus has been told to find leaders for, to appoint elders. And it's here that we see why appointing elders was such an important task. Because appointing elders, the bit that we looked at last week, it's the solution to the problem that we come to in verse 10. Elders are the solution. Here's the problem, verse 10. For there are many rebellious people, full of meaningless talk and deception, especially those of the circumcision group. They must be silenced. Because they are disrupting whole households by teaching things they ought not to teach, and that for the sake of dishonest gain. Do you see the problem? This is the problem. The churches of Crete look just like the surrounding culture. The people Paul is talking about here in verses 10 to 12, they're not the people outside the church. He's talking about the people inside the church. They're rebellious. They're deceptive. And when Paul says these people were disturbing whole households, he's not talking about families. He's saying they were disturbing the household of God. They were destroying churches that at that time met in houses. So within the various churches in Crete, there are not one, not two, but many people. Many people who are destroying the church from the inside with lies Deception and greed. The Cretans inside the church look just like the Cretans outside the church. And friends, that is a big problem. We'll come back to Crete in a moment. But thinking about our church here, friends, the worst thing that we as a church can be is just like everyone else. Because the gospel teaches us that we are not like everyone else. Not because we're better than other people, but if you're a Christian, if you're a follower of Jesus, you're someone who has been chosen by God to be holy and blameless. You've been called out of the world to be different from the world, to have a positive influence on the world, not to be completely removed from the world, but not to be like the world. And so if you read through scripture, you'll see countless examples of ways that Christians are told to be different. We're supposed to work different, spend different, speak different, love different, parent different, grieve different. Everything that Christians do should be unlike how other people do it. And so, friends, if we as a church are no different from the rest of Noosa, we're nothing. Our identity is in being 
different because we belong to God. We've been saved by him. And so I wonder, where do you see us being too much like our surrounding community? Are we living for the same things that they are? Would the average person on the street look at you and look at your next door neighbour who doesn't go to church and go, can't tell the difference? If they can, that's, that's a problem. Are we loving the same things that our neighbours love? Or does the way that we live together show our community that we've actually been changed forever? Does the way that we live show everyone that we have a better hope, that we're living for something greater than just the things of this world? It's a helpful question to ask ourselves. You know what would be really helpful? To ask your neighbour. It would be maybe a little bit scary to do. But I challenge you to do it, to actually ask a non-Christian friend, do they see a difference in you? Well, friends, the churches in Crete were in danger of looking just like their surrounding culture. But I want us to turn now to consider the specifics of the problem in Crete. Because I think you might find this a little bit surprising. Because the kinds of people that Paul is calling detestable and disobedient and unfit for doing anything good, they might not be the people that you expect. Have a look, uh, look at verses 13 and 14. He's told Titus that there are people in the church who are rebellious. And then he says in verse 13, Therefore, rebuke them sharply so that they will be sound in the faith and and will pay no attention to Jewish myths or to the merely human commands of those who reject the truth. Do you see who these people are? They're religious people. They're rule keepers. With the language that Paul is using, you'd be forgiven for expecting that he's talking about the kinds of people that he writes to in 1 Corinthians. You know, the people that he rebukes for having sex with their mother-in-law or getting drunk at the Lord's Supper. That's the kind of thing that comes to mind when I read this language. But Paul is not talking about rule breakers. He's talking about rule makers. People who are adding rules and wanting to keep rules in order to be accepted by God. They were teaching people that in order to belong to God, in order to be a true Christian, well, first you needed to be circumcised. We see that back in verse 10. Paul says they were from the circumcision party, which sounds like a terrible party. He also says that they were... Well, he he gives the impression, he's not very specific with what they were teaching, but he, he leads us, the context leads us to think that they were saying that Christians also needed to be ceremonially pure by not eating certain foods, by not touching certain things. They were Jewish laws, weren't they? That that was what people of the Old Testament needed to do. God said, the way that you will be different from the world is by being clean and he gave them all sorts of laws to obey the people in the church in Crete were saying this is what Christians need to do you need to be circumcised you need to not eat pork you need to not touch certain unclean things and Paul shreds them to pieces he says that anyone who teaches people to keep 
rules in order to earn God's favour is a liar and a rebel. He says they're detestable, disobedient, unfit for doing anything good. But it's what Paul says in verse 16 that really drives his point. Have a look at verse 16. Speaking of these rule keepers, he says they claim to know God, but by their actions, they deny him. They claim to know God. They look like the good guys. They look like nice, decent, religious people. They claim that they belong to God, but by their religious obedience, they actually deny him. Here's how that works. The Bible teaches us that there is only one way to be righteous, to be right with God. And it's by receiving it as a gift from God. Last Sunday was actually Reformation Sunday. It's been 504 years since Martin Luther nailed his 95 theses to the uh, Wittenberg church door where this is the kind of idea that he was defending. It was by grace alone that anyone is saved. It is a gift from God. You can't earn it. You can't work for it. It is a gift. It's grace. It's received through faith alone. That is simply by accepting the gift. And that faith is not in you. It's not in your own abilities. It's not in anything that you can do. It is in Christ alone. Grace alone, faith alone, Christ alone. That's what the Bible teaches us. That's how we can be made right with God. It's a gift that we receive because we believe in Christ. Works righteousness is the alternative. Works righteousness says that you can be right with God by earning it, by being good enough, by doing good things. It teaches that if you simply do enough, God will accept you because you're nice. It says that if you make the standard, God will love you and accept you. And friends, it's a horrible, horrible lie. Because what it does is tell God that you earned the thing that he offers you as a gift. Can you just imagine what that's like? Imagine that you gave me $10,000. A very generous gift. But instead of saying thank you, I turn around and say, well, actually, I earned that. You owed me $10,000. How would you feel about that? The generosity of your heart chose to give me money. And I said, oh, actually, it belonged to me. It was mine. Thanks for nothing. It was mine. That's what we do to God when we attempt to be good enough for him. My friends, there is no middle ground. Either we believe the gospel that says that righteousness is a gift from God, completely because of what he has done, or we believe that we earned it. And as soon as we add anything to the gospel, as soon as we say that you need to believe in Jesus and go to church, as soon as we say you need to believe in Jesus and keep the Ten Commandments, as soon as we say you need to believe in Jesus and do anything, then we've actually moved all the way. We've said you earn it. It's not a gift from God. It's about what you have done. 
It doesn't matter what that thing is that we add. It could be circumcision, it could be not eating pork, it could be not, it could be observing religious holidays, it could be going to church, it could be giving 10% of your money, it could be reading your Bible every day. It doesn't matter what you do. As soon as you add anything to the gospel, then you lose the gospel. As soon as you add any conditions, you're telling God, I earned it. It belongs to me. You owe me. And friends, this is where Titus 1 really hits home for us. Because as foreign as it sounds, works righteousness actually comes really naturally to all of us. Now, I suspect there's not many people here in the room that think Christians need to be circumcised or not eat pork or only whatever. There's not many Christians who believe that you need to obey the Jewish law to be right with God. But there are countless other ways in which we are tempted into works-based righteousness. Let me ask you, do you ever find yourself feeling a sense of pride at your own moral performance? Do you find yourself looking at the bad people and thinking, oh, I'm pretty good. I'm glad I'm not like them. That's a danger. That, that, that's a risk that you are going into works righteousness. You're starting to think that you are good enough. Do you ever treat Bible reading and prayer as things to be ticked off each day to secure your salvation? Do you ever worry that you're not good enough for God? If you worry... If, you, if you're concerned that you might not be good enough for God, well, I mean, in one sense, you're right. You're not. None of us are. But if, if you're insecure about your relationship with God based on how good you are, well, then you believe in a works righteousness. And friends, it's a terrible, terrible lie. Here's a helpful test for you. I want you to think of the answer in your head. Don't call it out. If you were to die today and you stand before God at the gates of heaven, you know the scenario. And he asks you, why should I let you into heaven? What would you say? What's your answer? Have a think in your head. What's the thing that you would say to God to get into heaven? If your answer starts with I, you're wrong. (laughs) If you think the reason that God should let you into heaven starts with I, because I was good, because I never lied or stole or cheated, because I went to church every Sunday, because I follow Jesus, anything that you say following I is a lie. Friends, that is not how you get into heaven. That is not how you become right with God. If you answer anything with I, you're saying that God owes you salvation. You're saying that you have earned your spot. Friends, the gospel teaches us that the answer to that question is not in the first person, it's in the third person. It's nothing to do with I, it's all to do with him. It's because he so loved the world that he gave his only son. It's because he died for your sin that you can be accepted. It's because his Perfect righteousness is counted as yours. Friends, it's all because of him. And this is the solution to the problem in Crete. And this is the cure 
to the danger of works righteousness in your own life, friends. This is the truth that we need to remember. And friends, it is, it is better news than works righteousness. If you are living your life thinking that you need to be good enough for God, you're going to live in despair. You're going to worry, am I good enough? Let me solve the problem. You're not. None of us are. We never will be. We cannot earn it. It is only by God's grace. Works righteousness leads us to deny God with our actions. Friends, if we want to know God, we need to know grace. The way for you to be right with God. The way for your life to be transformed so that you don't look like the people in your street. The way for our church to shine as light in a dark world. The way for people like us who are otherwise detestable, disobedient and unfit for doing anything good to be made perfect. The way is Jesus. It's all him. You don't need to do anything. You can't do anything. And any attempt that you make at doing anything actually just disqualifies you even more. Friends, if you think you can earn God's love, you haven't got it. If you think you can be good enough for God, you haven't got him. If you worry that the sins of your past disqualify you from heaven, you will never get there. Friends, the only way you can get it is by receiving it as a gift. How good is that? It is a gift. Just catch it. Friends, it's in God's grace alone. It's faith alone. And friends, that, that faith is in Christ alone. In Christ alone, my hope is found. We're about to sing those words, but how about I pray for us? Let's pray. Lord God, we've seen this morning that there is a danger that we can try and earn your love and your favour and your acceptance. We've seen this morning that doing so makes us detestable, disobedient, unfit for doing anything good. But friends, uh, Father, we hold on to the good news in this passage. We rejoice in knowing that while we can't be good enough, Jesus was good enough. While we can't deal with our own sin, Jesus has dealt with our sin. And Lord, we are so grateful for this free gift that you offer to all of us. Help us to accept it. Help us to know that it is completely your grace that makes us acceptable to you. Keep us from this devastating danger of thinking that we can be good enough for you. Lord, remind us of this today. Remind us of this this week as we go about our lives. May we cling to your grace, we pray. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.